That's one of the goals of the class, I think, is to help people think in analytically more precise and more defensible ways. And then another is certainly to help them understand people who are different than them. So even though this generation is better at it than before, especially when it comes to Islam, our students are absolutely full of misconceptions about it. And the fact is, it's not just Islam. Other Americans who don't know much about Latter-day Saints are full of misconceptions about us. People everywhere, millennials and older, we tend to jump to conclusions about people without really fully understanding where they're coming from or why. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hi, I'm here today with Professor Rob Eaton, who works at BYU-Idaho. I've known Rob for about 30 years. Oh my goodness, that's painful. I know, I said that on the air. Because we were in college then. I can't believe it's been 30 years, Laura. I have kids in college. Actually, I don't. My kids have graduated, and then I have a high schooler. Do you have college kids? We do. We have one in college still, two who've graduated, and one on a mission. Great. Tell us what you do, Rob. This month, I now teach religion again at BYU-Idaho, and I also teach a general education class. We call it Foundations at BYU-Idaho, an interdisciplinary class on Pakistan. So that's what I do most recently. And he says most recently because I am often caught saying I have career ADHD, but I think Rob has me beat. In I, have the... <laughs> a, I have a hard time holding down a job, Laura. I think you choose to leave. <laughs> But we're going to talk to him about this foundational course that he designed for BYU-Idaho that actually uses his undergraduate degree. Rob and I both share the same undergraduate degree, international relations. <laughs> and I never thought I would get to use that degree. I went to law school. So I was delighted and surprised when I ended up. I was, I should say, I was, I've been in the religion department for a long time, was there for five years, and then went into the administration before serving a mission and coming back. But it's this foundational course that we want to talk about, Pakistan. First, tell us why you designed this course, because this was your brainchild. It wasn't something you took over. So I was blessed to be part of a committee overhauling general education at BYU-Idaho. And I felt like it would be important for our students to have more international exposure. It's interesting. Just today, I talked with someone who is working for Amazon, and he just named people from four different countries that he works with on a weekly basis. Our children will work in a much more international world than you and I grew up in. And I felt like we didn't have anything in our general education requirements that would orient them to that. I also thought that it would be a great opportunity to create an interdisciplinary class that was very practical, very interesting, very relevant and modern, but that could give them a set of skills that they could use in a lot of different contexts in the world. So I proposed such a course and imagined that there would be three or four different flavors of the course. And I should have anticipated that they would then, once they approved that, come back and ask me to do it. But I didn't. And once they did, I was a little disappointed and reluctant, to be honest, even though I thought we needed the course. I'd left my corporate and legal jobs to teach religion, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted them to have someone else teach the course. You didn't necessarily have a background in 
Islam, did you? No, not at all. In fact, it went like this. They came to me and gave me a team with a Russian professor, Brian Feltz, who's wonderful, and Theron Josephson, a great geographer, and then later Alan Wahlberger, an economist, all joined our team. But in that first meeting, it was Theron and Brian and I, and we discussed the fact that what we wanted to do in this course, too, or especially, was help students recognize errors in their thinking and better understand people that they were prone to misunderstand. So we wanted to choose a country where students might be full of misconceptions. We wanted it to be a country that was important to the United States, but ill understood. So that was the question I asked, which country is most important to the United States and least understood? And we agreed on Pakistan. Now, that's an interesting choice. Why did you choose Pakistan as being the most important state? You know, I'm, I really can't recall with hindsight why we didn't choose it over Afghanistan or maybe Iran or Iraq at the time. But they, they were a little less known. They were getting less press than Afghanistan. So they were, I, I think it was less understood. But, I mean, any country is, but just a rich country with a fascinating, fascinating history. We also wanted, uh, I was mentioning to you before, a country with few or no return missionaries who'd served there because that would absolutely thwart the purpose of the class. I mean, what would you say raising your hand in a class where 20% of the students had been on missions there? You just, it wouldn't be a level playing field. It was useful that we were choosing a country where none of our students had served missions. Especially if they knew more than you did about the country. Absolutely. I could never, in fact, it would have been hard for us to get teachers to teach it, they all would be people who had to go there. And we're pretty embarrassed by it. None of us have been to Pakistan. The, group, the group's been to India after I was off the team, but it's been too dangerous to get to Pakistan. So it was a huge leap of faith for our initial team and any subsequent teacher to teach this course on a country we've never been to. Well, I have to admit, Rob shared his syllabus with me, and I looked over some of the material, and I am more interested in ever in reading all I can about those people and their religion. The last time I visited my son, he was driving me somewhere, and he had a tract in the bottom of his car, as messy 20-somethings usually do, that he had picked up from a mosque in hmm. Phoenix, that talked about the religion from a Sunni point of view. And it captivated me. I kept turning the pages, and we were going on errands. Every time I got back in the car, I picked up where I'd left off, and he said, Mom, don't take that. I'm reading that. So I was fascinated at how similar I felt to some of the beliefs, where in the past, I had felt it was so foreign. Is that part of the goal of your class, is to bring a familiarity to the unfamiliar? Yeah, I mean, we often get a comment like this somewhere near the beginning of the semester. So why do those people all hate us and want to kill us? And we're grateful when they make that comment, because even if the others haven't said it, many of the others are thinking it or thinking something like that. And in a world where when you read about Muslims in the press or view it on the media, unfortunately, much of the time when you're reading about them, you're reading about suicide bombers and terrorists. And so in our students' defense and in society's defense, it's not too surprising that they jump to that conclusion at times. As a missionary in Germany, I was blessed to teach, I would guess, maybe 300 Muslims, and it was usually just one lesson. And I love the German people. I love the native Germans. I love the melting pot that it was. But what stood out to me among the Muslims was how believing they were, frankly, in contrast to most modern Germans. So even though 
on some fancy chart, the German Lutherans would probably show up as being closer to us in reality, in terms of somebody who's actively striving to submit their will to God. I shared a greater affinity with these people, even though we didn't share a common belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But I was amazed and delighted by the hospitality and the kindness and the deep-seated spirituality of most Muslims that I met. Now, we did meet two who were baffled. They had their own little strange epiphany because they had their own negative stereotypes of Western Christians. And they were stunned because they could tell we were people of conviction. But these two guys said, so we don't understand. Why aren't you out there? Why don't you have guns? Why are you just talking? <laughs> and so that, uh, so actually back then, it was like two out of 300. Today, that ratio has gotten much worse. And, and we see a growing percentage, but still very much a minority of, of Muslims or people who identify themselves as Muslims who have a, a radical or militant interpretation of the religion. But the vast majority, it is striking the wonderful similarities that we see in terms of belief about prayer and tithing and word of wisdom and, and prophets. And family, too. Yes. They have very large families. Yes, yes. And, you know, after my mission, I lived with, uh, for one semester, with a Muslim roommate. I was on Washington Seminar with BYU, and somehow this student from Morocco, who was not a member of the church, who was Muslim, had uh, gotten an internship with a congressman from Indiana, and, uh, and he was our roommate. He was great. When he moved in, we said, wonderful, we live the United Order. And he said, great, what's that? And we said, well, whatever's ours is yours, and whatever's yours is ours. And uh, it worked out well for him because his luggage was missing, and so he wore my suits to work that first week. And he was great. He came to church with us. He took the lessons. He didn't join the church. He didn't convert, but he loved prophets. And as we talked together, I learned a lot from his example as well as from his teachings. And he was familiar with Jesus Christ because Jesus is a prophet in their religion. So it wasn't like he was starting from ground zero. You had something in common to talk about. I still remember one Sunday we had left church and we'd had a discussion with the missionaries afterwards. And he said, I have to go back. I've for I forgot the picture of the prophets. He'd gotten a picture of the modern day prophets and he loved that. He got that concept of prophets. Now they have big issues. There's a significant but minority sect in Pakistan that believes there have been prophets since Muhammad. And the rest of Muslims in Pakistan actually lobbied to have legislation declaring that sect non-Islamic because they believed in continuing prophets. So there are plenty of disagreements and arguments among different Muslims, just as there are among different Christians. Oh, definitely. The sects are quite different in what they believe. Just like the Jewish people in the intertestamental period, there began to be different sects and they believed vastly different things, even though they considered themselves all part of the Jewish faith. They had cultural things in common, probably more than religious. Would you say the same is the case? With Muslims generally yeah. and within yeah. Pakistan. I think one of the points we hope students take away from the course is that people are rarely monolithic as a group. And so we'll talk about the difference between living in Manan, Idaho, and Manhattan in New York, and how if someone came to the United States for three months in those two different places and returned, and then described what the United States was like and extrapolated based on the one city that they'd lived in, they would be painting two very different pictures. But those are both parts of the United States. It would be a mistake for either one of them to think they fully understood the United States by living in one city. So we help students see just city life, country life, Shia, Sunni, Islamic, Christian, that there are many different kinds of people. And even among those, sometimes very close to each other in the spectrum in terms of where they live or what they believe religiously, 
people are complex, that we have differences, and so we have to be wary of jumping to conclusions because we know a little bit about people. Just briefly, we're going to talk about some of the goals of your course, but as we're talking about this, I want to talk about millennials in general because we both have millennials that we call our children. And I love millennials. I even have very close friends who are millennials. I think sometimes they get a bad rap. I listened to a lecture given by Jana Reese, who's a researcher conducting a study right now about millennials and religiosity. And she listed the values that millennials hold. And they're basically great values that we want to engender in our children. They include authenticity, being human. If someone appears fake or they're pretending, they immediately lose the respect of a millennial. In general, we got to realize these are not for every person. They're innovative. They take risks. They like to be interactive, probably with social media that helps them. They have mission and passion, a global perspective, racial diversity. They're fine with that. Gender equality, they're very hip with that. A broader perspective on the family because they've grown up in dynamics that aren't leave-it-to-be-type dynamics. They have friends in those kind of dynamics. They're optimistic, and they have inclusion and tolerance. I showed this list to my daughter, and she goes, I'll add one more. We're naive. And I hmm. second that one. With that in mind, tell us how your goals kind of address those things. As you're teaching tolerance for those in Pakistan and those who believe other religions. So this generation is certainly more tolerant than almost any to go before it. And it's mostly a good thing, but I'll argue in a moment that in many cases we've got tolerance run amok and that there's an opposite extreme that we need to watch out for. And then you've got a subset of millennials who are the church members who come to BYU-Idaho who are wonderful, but different maybe than other millennials in some distinct ways. And then both millennials and everybody else have, well, I think all of us tend to engage in sloppy analytical thinking oftentimes. And so one of the goals of the course is to tighten up people's thinking, to help challenge their thoughts. And so it's probably my law school background, but I also team taught a, a course with Henry J. Iring, President Iring's son, in which uh, we had case studies and the students would write the cases and we would kind of debate them, but they were close calls. They were interesting episodes from history or from business. And so we brought that over into the Pakistan course. And it gives students an opportunity and requires them really to defend some of their answers. And we, we don't do the Socratic method in a humiliating, berating kind of way. But one of the first days of class, we asked them, if you were a Muslim living in Karachi, which is a city that ends up in Pakistan, in 1946, before the British government has left what was then unified India that included the current borders of Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, would you vote for separate nations of India and Pakistan or a single nation of India? and why. And it's usually about a 50-50 split. But then we start to push on students on both sides of the aisle for why they came down the way they did. I think, again, not just millennials, but many of us just too casually buy into certain assumptions and certain ways of thinking and believe things that people say. That's one of the goals of the class, I think, is to help people think in analytically more precise and more defensible ways. And then an, another is certainly to help them understand people who are different than them. So even though this generation is better at it than before, especially when it comes to Islam, our students are absolutely full of misconceptions about it. And 
the fact is it's not just Islam. Other Americans who don't know much about Latter-day Saints are full of misconceptions about us. People everywhere, millennials and older, we tend to jump to conclusions about people without really fully understanding where they're coming from or why. So we teach a set of skills, and it was meant to be an interdisciplinary class. So we draw from history, political science, geography, religion, languages, and help students see how you need to understand all these factors to really understand a country of people. And at the end of the semester one year, a student came up and said, nothing has helped me better understand my in-laws than this course. And I said, great. You know, are they from Pakistan? He said, no, they're like from Wyoming. <laughs> and I laughed, but, <laughs> but it made me so happy because that's what we were hoping for from the course. Here was a young man not getting along great with his in-laws, but he realized he needed to work harder to understand them, that he needed to understand their world, where they came from, what things had shaped their beliefs and behaviors if he was going to be able to get along with them better. And he needed to look for the good in them, the best in them, even though they were quite different from him. So I think this openness that they have is what you're addressing. We need to be open, but not too open. I think it makes some people nervous these days to think about the exclusive truth claims that our church makes, because we want to be open and accepting. And of course, the light of Christ is given to all men to know good from evil. And we're not saying we have an exclusive market on truth. But you specifically have addressed that. I have. I've, I've been thinking a lot. I, I was just released a few months ago or a few weeks ago as a mission president along with my wife. And, uh, and I got to be out on the street again as a missionary. I got out a lot with my, my missionaries. And I, in fact, I had a very unusual situation. I went back to the place I had lived in until 12 years ago, Washington Federal Way Mission. I was like the only mission president in the world with a parental chaperone. My father and two sisters live in the mission boundaries and so many wonderful old friends. But I was able to kind of compare and contrast religious conversations with people on the street and on their doors and in their homes in Washington today with people in that same place when I grew up. And it seems rare that there's somebody who believes there's truth that they need to seek and find. Just the notion that there's something about God or what he says or what he teaches that you could find out that's right and that that would be an important thing to know. We were really excited if we met somebody along those lines. In fact, I'd almost rather have somebody reject the first vision when they first hear it to say, that just can't be true, than have someone say, oh, I'm sure that's true. Because when you follow up that kind of statement, it was like, well, everything's true. I mean, you seem to believe it, so it must be true. And we noticed that that thinking even crept into our missionaries as they arrived, that this generation has become so tolerant that it seems narrow-minded to them to say, you've got to be baptized by someone with proper priesthood authority to receive the greatest blessings that God has in store. And so in the MTC and in the field, that's something that missionaries have to come to grips with, is that there are absolute truths. And you can, and it's, it's hard for all of us to hold these two seemingly contradictory thoughts in our hands at the same time, that people of any faith or no faith at all can be good people, in some ways better people than we or than I might be, that I could learn from their example, but that there are some absolute truths, some gates, if you will, through which we need to go to get the greatest blessings that God has in store for us. I think as I return and teach the Pakistan course, I was always trying to be careful before, but I'll be even more careful with some footnotes and cautions as we talk about that to make sure our students don't swing too far to the other extreme. And I think this brings in the fairness issue as well. Mm. 
I've been born at this time in this LDS family. Why should I have the opportunity that someone in Pakistan does not? And there are opportunities that we have, not only religious, but just in our daily lives that they don't have. How do you help them cope with that once they've found out about these great challenges that these wonderful people have? And then they look at their own lives. What kind of reactions are you getting? That's a great question. I think for most people, they're excited. Most of our students are just excited when they read about uh, the Aya Malala's uh, text we're currently using. I mean, this is like the most amazing young You would just love to have her in your young women's group, a young woman of courage and passion and integrity, who's a great example and whose book is written in a, a voice and, and in a very accessible style that makes it very easy for our students. And she's also woven in very conveniently for us most of the significant historic episodes that we want our students to learn about as they understand the history of Pakistan and what's led to the current situations. So when they discover people like that, it's kind of cool. There's an interview that we used to show with a model, a Pakistani model, a female dressed in modern dress. And the interviewer, who's British but of Pakistani descent, descent, asks if she'd do a nude scene. And she almost snarls at him like, never. And then he says, well, would you wear a bikini? And she says, no, what kind of woman do you take me for? What kind of Pakistani do you take me for? And you can almost see young women in the class flinch because most of them probably have worn bikinis, even though they probably believe they shouldn't be wearing bikinis. But here's this Pakistani woman they can see who believes the same thing they believe, but has had the courage to act upon that and do it. And just to have that light go off, wow, she doesn't want to bomb us. She looks really cool, and I can learn something from her. It's a great example of what Christa Stendhal, the former dean of the Harvard Divinity School, who's not LDS, called holy envy. He said there were three rules, and I actually looked them up, so I've got them, oh, great. Um, that he has for people in comparing religions. And the first is when you're trying to understand another religion, you should ask the adherents of that religion and not its enemies. The second is don't compare your best to their worst. I mean, imagine if people judged members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints based on the beliefs and conducts of Warren Jeffs. I mean, and as we see it, we're, oh, and we're subdue. Just, I, I, exactly. I saw a Newsweek. The cover was famous Mormons, and they had on there a picture of fundamentalists. And I just wanted to say, no, 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 that's, no, that's not, not us. And and that I think is exactly how what I'll call a mainstream Muslim feels when we judge Islam by Osama bin Laden and by ISIS. Now it's. Numerically, it's not a perfect analogy, unfortunately. It is a growing segment. It's, it's something we need to take very seriously. But the vast majority of, for example, Muslims in Pakistan, far more Muslims have been killed by terrorists in Pakistan than have been killed in the United States. They're victims of militant Islam, not as much as anybody, almost more than anybody. And so for them, I think it's very painful when we sweep them all together. So it's fun to see the lights go off in students' eyes as they come to some of those conclusions. Oh, his third one was leave room for holy envy. And that's where you see something in the way someone else lives or practices or when it comes to religion, what they believe and do that is not formally part of your religion, but that you think is maybe a good thing, something that you could learn from. And that's not the grass is greener kind of concept. Give us an example. So I, this, this uh, roommate, Ahmed, uh, well, I won't say his last name, but Ahmed from Morocco, as I watched him pray and we talked about prayer, first of all, I'd assumed that he was just reciting things. But as I talked with him, at least for him personally, 
he was communing with God. I think he had some recited prayers too, but he was communing with God more faithfully and consistently and frequently than I was a year off my mission. And that pricked me. I thought, I've got holy envy for Achman, and it improved the quality of my own prayers as I looked to his good example. Now, I don't kneel down and point toward Mecca, and I don't recite prayers from the Quran, but I was still able to learn from his good example. Oh, and the month of Ramadan just amazes me. Mm. Every month, when it's the first Sunday, I think of Ramadan and say, it's Mm. only 24 hours. Mm. It's only 24 hours. You know, I was just reading a little bit of Elder Holland's talk that he just gave at Education Week, and he quotes uh, something from Elder Maxwell I hadn't heard before uh, about a day coming perhaps when irreligion would become the state religion of the day. And we've seen growing secularism. I think in a world of growing secularism and fading belief, it's important for true followers of Christ to respect and love and appreciate other believers of God, whatever their denomination. And we can do that without sacrificing absolute truths to which the Spirit has borne witness. But, you know, I was thinking just as we were talking, Laura, about how I approach sharing the gospel a little bit differently on this mission as a a full-time missionary than I did 30 years ago. And I don't know how much of it I would attribute to this class that I've been teaching. But I'll I'll give you one or two quick examples. I was out tracting the very first night because that's what Elder Bednar told us to do. So we got out and tracted or got got out and we we were knocking on doors with the missionaries. And a man kind of put up his hand and said, I'm good. I've found Christ. But thanks. Appreciate what you're doing. And as a younger missionary, I think I would have jumped immediately to the differences and just thought, but you don't have priesthood authority, you haven't been baptized, I would have somehow jumped in right there, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And this time I said and meant it, that is wonderful that you have found Christ. How long has it been? He said, six years. Do you mind if I ask, how did you find Christ? Who helped you? He said, I just got out of prison. It was a rough time. I'd hit rock bottom. And this friend helped me, and this is what we did. And I talked to him for a while and asked him how his discovery of Christ had changed his life and blessed his life. As we talked, I appreciated him more, and I could also see his defensive barriers coming down. And then eventually I did pivot. I needed to pivot as a fully commissioned representative of Jesus Christ to let him know good news about the restoration. But I was able to build on some important common ground, and I took him to Cornelius, which I love, whose story I love, and the book of Acts to say, I think you've been in a state of preparation. God has clearly blessed your life and brought you, and the good news is there are even more blessings ahead. Let me tell you about this, and moved on from there. I was much more prone to try to stop and appreciate a little bit of the good in other people's beliefs before racing on to distinguishing our beliefs. And I kind of had to do that in high school because I grew up in the Midwest where there were no other members in my high school. So I took to navigate towards those people who have the same values. I navigated towards Christians and I felt very comfortable talking to them about Christ and their beliefs and just marveling at how dedicated they were in their religion and how beautiful that was just to share that commonality, even though there was no interest to convert. That doesn't always have to be the end goal. We're seeing, I think, the brethren modeling this, as you see President Eyring speaking at a conference at the Vatican. Uh, that was great. He's not about to become Catholic, no. but he's, he's showing us all that we've got some very important shared interests. And uh, tender to hear the way that Elder Perry talked about a Catholic archbishop friend or whoever it was. Inspiring to hear the words that President Hinckley had for the Pope. John Paul, as he was passing, 
or just after he passed. And yet all of them are, continue to be unequivocal and unabashed witnesses, special witnesses of the Savior Jesus Christ and the restoration of the gospel in our day. I think it's, it's becoming a bit of a lost skill to simultaneously respect others whose beliefs we don't completely share and then hold firm to some beliefs that are unique. And I think that's something that we struggle with. We engage in the struggle of balancing those two, and it's a good struggle because it means we are engaged. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. All Everybody right. I interview, I say in five sentences or less, nobody's been able to do it in five sentences. By the way, usually they take five paragraphs, but you can do five paragraphs. We can listen to you that long. Just sum up for our listeners what you think we can best learn by studying people of other cultures and having an open mind about their beliefs and how to balance that with our own beliefs and our own desires to spread the gospel. As we study people whose religious beliefs are different than ours, but who are fundamentally committed to following God, I think we can be reminded of the universality of God's love, that we are all his children and that we are not alone among truth seekers in the world and among devoted people. It can help us be more precise in our thinking, more careful and much slower to jump to false and dangerous conclusions about others. And as we look for the best in people of other faiths, it helps us strengthen our charity muscles. It helps us look for the best in the 12-year-olds in my Sunday school class and in my wife and in my brothers and sisters. As we do all that and remain firmly committed to absolute truths of eternal significance to which the Spirit's born witness, we can simultaneously be seekers of truth who are tolerant of other seekers of truth who come to different conclusions. Thanks, Rob, for visiting with us today. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate you having me. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Most of the time, we use the Journal of Discourses to try to make religious points, right? They're sermons. They're speeches that are almost universally religious in nature. And so that means when we use them, we're using them to try to make a religious point. The problem is when you're making religious points, when you're making theological points, words matter a lot. And that, I think, can cause some hangups when we're looking at this. For instance, someone might say, well, you know, Brigham Young, you know, said this and this, but he didn't say this. Well, actually, he did say the third thing that you were looking for. That's just no longer in the published version, right? LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.